Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Bob Drake. Uh, my name is David Blair, and I'll be your moderator today. This webinar is not a presentation, but an interactive question and answer period. Uh, for the next hour, Bob will take any questions you have related to individual placement and support, or IPS, uh, with a focus on providing IPS to people with co-occurring mental health and substance use problems. Bob is the Andrew Thompson Professor of Health and Policy and Clinical Practice at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and Vice President of the Westat Corporation. His work in psychiatric rehabilitation is over four decades long, including integrated treatments for people with dual disorders, evidence-based mental health practices, and implementing vocational services, has helped to shift the mental health services towards greater resonance with clients' goals. With Deborah Becker, who uh, you saw, who we held a webinar with uh, in the past couple weeks, uh, he has developed the Individual Placement and Support Model of Supported Employment, uh, which is an evidence-based practice now used across the United States and around the world. Uh, he's conducted numerous research projects, uh, projects, published over 600 journals and articles and books, and trained many successful researchers. Today's event is part of the National Resource Center on Employment, jointly funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research, and from the Center for Mental Health Services within the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, a part of the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, the content of this webinar does not represent the views or policies of these funding agencies, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. Uh, during the registration for the event, you were given the opportunity to submit questions in advance. Over the course of the webinar, we will alternate between those questions submitted in advance and the ones you uh, asked today. To ask a question over the phone, please indicate that you would like to in the chat box in the webinar window. Uh, when called upon, you will press star star on your phone to unmute yourself. If you also would like, you may type your questions into the chat box and I'll read them to Bob uh, on your behalf. So Bob, you don't have to look at any of the screen. I'll take care of it all for you. Your okay. participation is critical to the success of the event. Welcome to the webinar, everyone. Uh, welcome, Bob, and I hope everyone enjoys the next hour. Uh, I'm gonna get us started uh, with one of the submitted questions, but before we do any of that, I was just hoping, Bob, if you could get us started with telling us what you spend your typical day on. <laughs> well, nowadays I'm uh, mostly just a researcher, so I spend my day reviewing articles and helping people to write grants and uh, papers and things and having uh, meetings about research projects. I saw a lot of uh, clients or patients up until a year ago when I retired from that. Awesome. You know, a lot of the times over the course of this webinar, previous guests had mentioned different activities that they're involved with. Uh, is there anything that you'd like everyone to know about that you're involved with or, you know, to get, get the word out about something? Well, you know, I've been working in programs for people with co-occurring disorders since the 70s, so that's a long time. I have a little bit of experience and a lot of uh, research projects in that area, and I still, uh, you know, consult to a dual diagnosis program, and I volunteer every week at the local uh, homeless shelter where we see a lot of people with co-occurring disorders. So that's been one of my long-term interests as well as uh, trying to help people uh, get back to work and 
get well and get out of the mental health system. Thank you very much. I know you work with Deborah Becker, and she talked about last time the IPS Works website, um, and I'm going to go ahead and share that with everyone just so they, they have it this time, too. Um, and with that, if, if you're ready, I'll go ahead and turn to the question. That's fine. Okay. Uh, Deborah uh, from Lebanon, Oregon, asks, how can an employment specialist help a person gain employment with the barrier of a criminal history or sex crime plus a current substance abuse uh, and serious mental illness with honoring all the type of work they're interested in doing, which probably doesn't have allowances for all these barriers? Yeah. So, you know, first of all, one of the things we know is that most of the people that we work with in community mental health have co-occurring substance use disorders. So that's sort of our typical uh, client, it's not shouldn't be a big deal or anything uh, special. Another thing we know is from the national household surveys is that um, the great majority of people who have alcohol or drug problems are employed. Um, another thing we know is that across all of our employment studies, people who have co-occurring substance use disorders. Uh, do just as well as people who do not have co-occurring substance use disorders. Um, I think that entanglement with the criminal justice system is uh, a bit more of a barrier, and we can talk about in detail how we um, handle both of those issues, the, the co-occurring substance abuse and also the uh, entanglement with the the justice system. Should I go ahead and talk about those? or um, So first of all, uh, you know, working with people who have co-occurring substance use disorders, statistically or research-wise, that's not really a barrier to getting employment. So let me talk about co-occurring substance use disorders. I'll just call it substance abuse, but you know that refers to alcohol and or drugs, and it refers to abuse or dependence. Lots and lots of people that we work with, obviously, have co-occurring substance abuse. You know, they can work just as well as uh, everybody else, but uh, we want to take account of uh, several things. One is, uh, you know, we'd like to make sure that people are in some kind of co-occurring disorders treatment. So, you know, they're going to do better if they're also uh, trying to learn to manage their mental health problems and their substance abuse problems. But, you know, we know from longitudinal research that, in general, people go to work and work helps them to uh, manage their mental health and substance abuse difficulties rather than that people get complete control of those issues and then go to work. You know, I, I was taught in training years ago that people should be abstinent for six months before they try a new job or other new activities. That turns out to be exactly wrong. You know, most people, again, uh, go to work first and work uh, helps them to recover from substance abuse uh, rather than uh, the other way around, getting abstinent and, and that helping them to work. But having said that, uh, we try to do several things when we help people get jobs if they've got a co-occurring substance abuse problem. The first is to, uh, you know, make sure if we can that they're getting some kind of um, treatment or help with uh, learning to manage their uh, substance abuse. The second is that um, people understand completely that most employers do uh, urine drug tests nowadays, and so uh, 
they need to know about how long uh, the drugs they're using stay in their urine um, so that they can be sure to be uh, to have a clean urine when they go to apply for the job. The third thing is we try to help people uh, make sure that they get a job in a setting where they're not exposed um, to alcohol and drugs. Uh, you know, people who've got an alcohol problem um, probably shouldn't be working in bars and they shouldn't be working in restaurants that serve alcohol where they can uh, finish people's uh, drinks as they're uh, carrying them back. Um, people who have a drug problem uh, probably shouldn't be working in pharmacies or emergency rooms or hospital areas where uh, drugs are widely uh, available. Um, people probably shouldn't be working in settings where there's, uh, you know, rampant uh, alcohol and marijuana use on the job, and there are lots of jobs around in every community like that. Um, and another thing we do is to uh, try to make sure that um, people have a good plan for managing their money. Uh, for many people, uh, having cash in their pocket is a one of the cues that leads them to uh, substance abuse. And if that's uh, been a problem for the person, we want to try to work with them to set up some kind of voluntary money management uh, problem that uh, prevents their, you know, getting a first paycheck and then going out on a cocaine binge or something like that. So we try to do all of those things for the person uh, uh, who's um, got a co-occurring substance abuse problem. But maybe the most important thing is that uh, we just educate ourselves and keep reminding ourselves that uh, the typical course of recovery um, takes a few years. Uh, you know, once people have lost control of their alcohol use and developed alcoholism, uh, and then they decide they want to quit drinking, the typical time until they take their last drink is about seven years. And that's just the normal course of recovery. You know, people cut down on their use. People have longer periods of abstinence. People use fewer days. They may have fewer binge drinking uh, days. Uh, but they have relapses, too. Um, and... That goes on with sort of gradual re recovery over a few years for most people, and the same with most uh, drug problems. So uh, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we think that uh, people are going to get abstinent overnight. Um, we keep reminding ourselves, you know, that we want to help the person uh, in this recovery process uh, to manage their substance abuse and their mental health problems so they don't get in the way of working. And what we see happen, happening longitudinally is that um, people, if they enjoy their jobs, start to find the work very satisfying and the, um, you know, the identity and the pay and the regular routine and the new set of friends and all of these things that come with work um, start to be helpful in the recovery process. You know, I think over time, 
people gradually build up all the supports and new skills and habits and everything that they need uh, to be completely re recovered from substance abuse and or or to at least to be abstinent for a long period of time. I don't know if people are ever really completely recovered, but uh, those things just gradually build up. And so that's what we're trying to do is, is to help them with that. And a good job is one of the most important uh, steps, one of the most important components in that uh, process of uh, recovery. So we don't expect people to be abstinent right away, but we do want to be have a really open conversation with them about um, you know how they're doing with all these issues and how we can uh, help them with the issues and how we can help make sure that uh, their job is protected so that they uh, can become a steady worker. Um, now switching just for just a minute to the issue of um, entanglement with the criminal justice system, uh, as, as you all know, people with mental illness have gotten uh, shunted into the criminal justice system, mostly for very minor kinds of offenses over the, over the last uh, 10 or 20 years, this has become a serious, serious problem. Um, and here I think what we want to do is to uh, try to make sure that uh, people know how to handle the um, criminal justice uh, record that they have because most employers, again, are going to do background checks and employers are not happy to find out about someone's um, justice system record and be surprised by that. So uh, we did a study once where we interviewed lots of uh, employers about how to handle this issue. And, and virtually all of them said to us, well, you know, I've hired people who've been arrested and been convicted and even have had felonies, but I want to hear from them when they apply for the job um, that this happened to them and that it was in the past and that they're, uh, you know, doing much better now and they haven't had any uh, recent offenses and, you know, they feel like they've paid their dues and uh, they're sorry for what they did. Uh, often it was due to having a substance abuse problem that they got arrested. But, it, you know, in general, employers just want the person to be honest with them and uh, express contrition. Uh, many, many employers uh, understand all these issues, just like they understand substance abuse issues. You know, one of the many great things about uh, getting your clients to go to AA meetings is that they will uh, meet people in AA meetings who know about jobs, and they'll meet people in AA meetings who are employers. Um, and so, it, you know, it's a good place to find out about uh, jobs and employers who are, uh, you know, interested in helping people to recover. Sure. Why don't I stop there? Maybe there are more specific questions. I'm sure. You know, there, looking at the questions that were submitted in advance, there were a lot about that subject, so I really appreciate you. Going to one of the questions in the room, Robert asked, what do you think about trying to hire more certified peer specialists as employment specialists to share their lived experience and recovery of their own due to work? Yeah. Well, I know lots of programs are doing this now, and they're doing it in different ways. Uh, sometimes the peers 
who get hired are uh, doing part of the job and working with other employment specialists, and sometimes they're doing all of the job. We don't have good data yet on how this all goes, but, you know, my basic uh, feeling for a long time has been that, um, you know, the dichotomy between professionals and peers is a false dichotomy. You know, most of us in the mental health system uh, have had mental health problems, have family members with mental health problems. You know, many of us don't acknowledge those things publicly, but, uh, you know, I think it's just part of who we are in the mental health system. We have a sensitivity and an empathy uh, for mental health problems. And we know that uh, people who have lived experience have got, you know, some special experiences that really help them to do whatever uh, job they're in. In the research center that I've been running for 35 years or whatever it is, uh, you know, we've always hired people who um, have lived experience and, uh, you know, they have been just part of our team. And, you know, they've worked in finance or they've worked as interviewers or they've worked as research assistants or they've worked in uh, the data area, you know, whatever their skills are, you know, they do just fine in those sure. jobs. We've never experienced it as a barrier in any way. We, In sure. fact, we've experienced that as, as an enrichment because, uh, you know, people, everybody brings their own experiences to a discussion about uh, research. And I think we've always found that um, good interventions and good uh, research start from really understanding in detail uh, what people's lives are like and what people want uh, from their from their uh, treatment and from their, um, you know, experiences in the world. In, in uh, research terms, this is often called phenomenology. And so, uh, you know, there's some people who specialize in that area. But I think it's always an important part of good research, just like it should be an important part of uh, clinical services everywhere. My close friend, uh, Pat Deegan, has uh, taught me a lot about this over the years. And I think uh, one of the things that Pat always says is that, um, you know, if they're peers as part of the team, then, um, you know, the discussions are uh, more empathetic and less stigmatizing, that it has a way of helping the clinicians to, um, I don't know, use better language and think about problems in more client-centered ways. Absolutely. Um, I know we have a lot of questions, so I'm going to move you along to another one. There's a large sure. contingent of uh, participants from the state of North Carolina here. And William uh, asks, is it appropriate or possible to ask the clinicians uh, to state in the assessment that one of the co-according disorders is, quote unquote, primary and the other is secondary? Our funders here in North Carolina during the authorization for treatment process will many times deny authorization for IPS when it appears uh, from the assessment that the substance abuse disorder is predominant in relation to the diagnosis of SMI slash SPMI. Of course, uh, funding for mental health and substance abuse services is a bizarre uh, situation that makes no sense and isn't appropriate in any uh, meaningful way. I think if, if you want to think about this uh, scientifically, we can say from a research perspective that, uh, you know, mental health problems and substance abuse problems tend to occur at slightly different times based on the natural history of these things. But once somebody has, has a problem with uh, both mental health and substance abuse, 
the two become intertwined so that it's, you know, part of who we are and what we have to manage uh, in our lives. We don't really separate it out and think about, well, you know, this half of my brain is, has got substance abuse and this half of my brain has got depression. It doesn't work that way. Um, and we know from uh, lots of uh, research on treatment that you really want to be addressing both problems at the same time, right? What we call concurrent integrated uh, treatment. So uh, trying to establish one as primary and one of one as secondary doesn't make much sense uh, scientifically. I think it also doesn't make much sense in terms of uh, funding. You know, we have lots of data now to show that people with uh, mental health difficulties of all kinds uh, do very well in IPS. And we also have lots of research to show that people with substance abuse problems do well in IPS, and people who've got co-occurring problems do well in IPS. So there's no scientific reason that people should be denied uh, treatment regardless of what uh, kinds of um, you know, behavioral problems uh, they have. But I know that uh, every state has got its own bizarre rules, who qualifies for what kinds of services and what's reimbursed and all that. I, I think it's all a perverse system. I dream that we would uh, be able to use strengths-based records entirely, and then some computer algorithm would convert it into the kind of uh, diagnosis and problem-oriented records that the uh, insurance companies require. I would just assume the uh, clinicians not have to look at that nonsense. Thank you. For By the way, <laughs> I'm from North Carolina, too, so I love North Carolina. I'm glad there are people on from there. And they seem to be, Tara uh, says, uh, comment only, go North Carolina. Thank you, Bob. <laughs> okay, great. Um, Lindsay asks, how do you work with clients who miss work on a regular basis because of substance abuse and seem to have motivation to work but keep losing their job due to the substance abuse? Yeah. Well, that happens sometimes. And uh, life's a journey, and it's a longitudinal process, right? Most of us... Uh, most of us didn't like or didn't do well in our first job. I know I tried lots of different things uh, before I stumbled into becoming a researcher. Um, and most of our clients do, too. It's very unusual for the first job uh, to work out exactly. They're all learning experiences early on. And one of the things, um, you know, that's helpful is when people get real-world feedback. Uh, you can't keep a job if you don't show up for work every day. And... If that's happening to you, then we need to talk a lot about, um, you know, why are you missing work and are there ways that we can uh, address that problem because you're never going to be able to keep a job if you can't uh, uh, be steady about showing up. Melissa in the chat box ask, my question is in regards to perspective. My department has yet to convert to an IPS model. Many perspectives I have heard is that people, quote-unquote, aren't ready. Uh, many of our folks are at baseline and really want to work. Is it possible for someone with schizophrenia and very little social skills to be successful? Is it possible for someone that is in and out of the hospital to be successful? You know, what types of jobs are attainable? Yeah. And, well, I guess the question, you know, the answer to all those possible questions is yes. Um, 
Sometimes professionals have got the idea that they can predict who's going to be successful at work. And, you know, there, there's no research data over the last 30 years that I'm aware of that substantiates that uh, delusion. Um, you know, when we closed our first, uh, our day treatment program here in New Hampshire the first time, gosh, the guy that I predicted was the least likely to work. Um, he got a job very part-time, and, uh, you know, now 30 years later, he's still working every day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I see him, he's got a car, an apartment, and uh, everything else. He's doing just fine, and I never would have expected that. And we've done lots of research studies where the the professionals and the in the VR system and in the mental health system uh, told us that people couldn't work and then they turned out to be uh, successful. I think it is really important that somebody wants to work. Uh, you know, we, we and others have never had success trying to uh, force people to work who don't want to work. But if you start with people who would like to have a job, I think the, uh, you know, the fun part of IPS and the, um, and the real skill there is that uh, it's our responsibility to help um, the person find a good job match that's something that they can do. Um, and I love traveling around and visiting IPS programs and seeing some of the creative uh, job matches that they come up with. Um, I remember meeting a guy who uh, had the problem of of uh, in, in addition to his mental illness, he had the problem of kleptomania. And he was always uh, taking things from offices. And uh, the IPS worker got this guy a job in a cemetery, and he was often taking flowers. But you know that was just fine with everybody because the flowers go bad, and they always have a chore uh, clearing them out. And they loved him there. Um, I remember seeing a guy who screamed out at his hallucinations much of the day. Uh, obviously not a good candidate for an office job, but uh, they got this guy a job in a sawmill where everybody wore, you know, the ear mufflers to screen out the noise, and nobody was bothered at all by his screaming. He, he was a very successful employee there. And I could go on and on giving you examples like that. But, you know, they all depend on really being able to make contact with the person and find out who they are and what they're interested in and what they're good at. And then, uh, you know, go out and find a job that matches um, those interests and skills and so on. Yeah, it really sounds like you're talking about matching the personality along with the job as well. Um, yeah, you'd Amy really like asked, somebody to have a job that um, is, is you know, fun for them and that helps them in their recovery. Right. Uh, for the next question, Amy asks, do you have any suggestions on how to strengthen relationships and communication with clinical services when they are not internal to the employment component? And she mentions that this is the case with most of their teams. Where the clinicians are not um, really understanding and invested in vocational, is that the issue? 
Yeah, that's the idea. They run it as, as separate teams within the organization where there's not much overlap between the two. So about oh, building communication across them. Yeah. Well, you know, IPS is team-oriented uh, for a reason. Um, and there have been lots of studies of this. If you, you know, when we first got into the field, the uh, uh, wisdom of the experts, which is usually wrong, uh, said that it was important to separate mental health services and vocational services. Um, but there are lots of studies now to show that if you integrate the two services and the mental health clinicians and the vocational IPS workers, you get better outcomes than if you keep them separate. Uh, I think that so the, the one issue is structural. You've just got to figure out how to uh, get people together on the same team so that they're meeting together and they're trying to solve problems together. You know, the clinicians really should be um, a part of helping people to find jobs. I mean, the typical meeting of our team here is that, um, and I'm talking about in my clinical role, um, you know, the vocational specialist says, well, you know, I've spent a few hours with this guy, and I've been to his home, and I've walked around with him, and, and uh, you know, he's very paranoid and scared around people, but but he loves being around animals, and I think we need to find him a job where he's got not so much people contact at the beginning, but he's got a lot of contact with uh, animals. And so then it should be a group or a team process where the team brainstorms and says, you know, one person on the team says, well, um, you know, I live next to a farm, and I'll talk to the farm people about what kind of job they might have for this guy. And another person says, well, I take my cats to, you know, this veterinarian, and I'll ask the veterinarian about uh, what what he might do. And another person says, well, I have a friend who, you know, owns a pet store downtown, and I'll talk to him about this. And so we're all out there trying to find a job working with animals uh, for this guy. It isn't just the IPS specialist job. And then once we get somebody into a job, it's also, you know, a team-oriented uh, task to help make sure he or she has the supports that they need to be successful uh, on the job. Now, the, the difficulty with this is that um, lots of clinicians have never worked on such a team and don't really understand how IPS works, um, and they don't understand integrated services. And so, you know, we need to convince them of this, and we can do so by, in lots of different ways, you know, having them read things, having them watch videos, having them talk to people like them who have worked on these kinds of teams, you know. So, like I often hear, it calls that... Um, well, you know, our doctors are bums and they don't understand that people can work and they want to work and uh, so on and so on. They're telling our patients that uh, they're not ready to have employment and so on, and we can't get through to them. And so I say, well, you know, would, would you like us to send one of our doctors out to spend a day with you and to meet with your doctors and go over all these things with them because they may be more likely to listen to another doctor. But in general, I find uh, clinicians sort of get it and the light bulbs go off 
when one of their clients that they really cares about gets a job and it really uh, has a transformative effect on the person's life. Uh, I know that's what happened to me. I, I didn't have any training in vocational services, and uh, uh, Debbie Becker was always bugging me about uh, getting people jobs, and I was kind of trying to put her off. But um, then she, when she got jobs for a couple of people that I didn't think could work, and I saw how it spurred their recovery ahead in ways that I, would, I just never thought were possible, then I became a believer. And so I started wanting to know more about employment services and want to know more about how you know I could be helpful and we could build this into our mental health system. Sure. Um, Amy actually clarified uh, that her problem is in addition that they're separate organizations, meaning that they're... Yeah. Know different companies, and how do you you know yeah. get to that level of communication when you can't make it a team? I guess. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the burden of that should fall on the CEOs, and they should talk to each other, and they should figure out. Okay, should your clinician come meet with our team for the team meeting, or should we uh, go to meet with you for the team meeting? And how can we make sure that um, you know, this works effectively and that nobody loses money. Um, I am going you know, to... CEOs usually are just worried about uh, the, you know, their funding streams and their budgets and so on. Excellent. Thank you. I'm going to try to roll two people's questions into one, so I apologize if I butcher both of them in the process. Uh, <laughs> Gabriel asks uh, about, on a realistic basis, would you say employers are more educated to support individuals with mental health and substance abuse challenges to succeed on the job? And then the, the, the second question I'm trying to roll in uh, is from Richard, who asked, do you believe self-disclosure can help or hinder someone's chances in getting hired? So the preparation yeah. of employers and then self-disclosure. Yeah. So, you know, every employer is a little bit different. Um, a few years ago, I spent three or four years doing job development just so I could learn about it and see how it would go. Um, and I was really surprised how uh, interested most employers were in hiring people with disabilities. Uh, and most of them didn't want to know, you know, real details about what kind of disabilities, you know, people had. I used to show up and say, well, you know, I'm a vocational specialist, and I'm trying to help young people with disabilities uh, uh, get jobs. And I, you know, wanted to know about your company and who you hire and so on, you know, the usual way we do job development. And what I found out was, gosh, at least half of the employers uh, really had an interest in hiring people with disabilities. And that was usually because, you know, somebody in their family had a disability or was in recovery, and sometimes it was a mental health issue, and sometimes it was a physical issue, and sometimes an addiction issue. But as we got to know each other a little bit, usually they revealed uh, some some things about that. Um, and you, you know, you could also usually tell in the first meeting if the person was uh, really not wanting to hire people with disabilities. You know, they know they can't say that because of ADA, I guess, but but it becomes pretty clear as you talk to them 
that they're you know overly fearful about all of these things. So anyway, we try to develop relationships with the people uh, that are interested uh, in being helpful in their community and in having a diverse workforce. I mean, I think there's lots of lots of data now to show that uh, diverse workforce leads to more creativity and uh, productivity, and uh, you know that that can refer to hiring people from minority backgrounds, but it can refer to hiring people um, with disabilities too. And most employers nowadays really get it and understand that that's uh, an important thing. Now, uh, regarding somebody disclosing their disability, um, you know, that's always personal choice and it's up to the individual and, you know, I think it's really important that we all have good skills for talking to people about that and getting them to understand, uh, you know, when it's helpful for us to do job development and when it's helpful for us to uh, talk to the employer with them and when it's helpful for them to disclose something about their mental illness. And I've found over time most clients have unrealistic ideas about all these things. You know, they think you're going to go hand the person a list of their diagnoses or they think disclosure means they've got to, uh, you know, tell somebody about all the difficulties uh, they've had over time. And, of course, none of that's true. And so what we try to, what we try to do is, uh, you know, have a practice interview uh, with the person. Or if I'm going to go talk to the employer, just like if I'm going to go talk to the family, um, you know, I want to tell the person exactly what I'm going to say and make sure that's okay with him. Uh, he can help me figure out how to phrase it and uh, what to say and so on. Uh, and again, my experience has been most employers don't want those kind of details. Uh, you know, the most, I mean, usually an employer will say, well, that's really, you know, interesting. You know, what? tell me about these people or where do you work? or something like that, which can be answered in, you know, very generic terms rather than uh, any details. And I, I think there are some employers that are more afraid of substance abuse, and there are more, some that are more afraid of mental health issues, and there are some that are more afraid of uh, criminal justice involvement issues. And so uh, I think it's best not to get into any of those details um, unless you need to. Sure. And I would say the same for um, disclosure. And I've, I've had a lot of clients. <laughs> I would just worked with a guy for um, two or three years who kept getting jobs and not telling the employer about his um, criminal justice history because it was 10 years ago and he thought it wouldn't be on his record anymore and so on. And he got about three jobs in a row and then the, they did a background check and he got laid off before he really got started in the job. And uh, so finally, uh, he agreed to uh, do some practicing and really figure out how to tell his story in a compelling way uh, to the employer. And, uh, you know, and then he got a great job. I mean, just a great job. Uh, and partly because the employer was so interested in addiction issues. 
Very interesting. You know, I, I shared this last time, but there's a job search board called 70millionjobs.com, and it's specifically targeted to people with forensic backgrounds. Uh, so I'll share that link in the, the chat for everyone. Uh, Lynn asks, how does IPS differ in serving people with other disabilities? For example, substance abuse co-occurring with intellectual intellectual or physical disability. So that's a great question. Um, you know, there are more and more IPS teams in different kinds of settings. Like two years ago, we started a team here for um, people, young adults with uh, autism spectrum disorder. And so, you know, the team is really an IPS specialist and a neurocognitive specialist and a psychiatrist who's a specialist in autism. And, uh, you know, they meet together and they try to compare notes on uh, what kind of strengths the person has. And the IPS specialist, you know, spends time with the person and spends time with the family. And sometimes you have to get most of the history from the family because the person's not very verbal. So, you know, there's not really, it's not like working in a mental health center. You know, it's a, it's a team that's more oriented towards the particular population. And they've had great success. I think they got everybody uh, in that uh, group good jobs. We have another team here now that works with, uh, you know, uh, downstairs here works with pregnant women who are heroin addicts. And so the team is really, you know, an OB doctor and uh, who joins the addiction team and an IPS specialist who also joins the addiction team down there. And they work together to, you know, help the pregnant lady uh, be stable and, and uh, do some work. Uh, while she's pregnant and make plans for after the delivery. I visited a very cool team at the Tampa VA Hospital, which is the largest spinal cord injury center in the VA. And they, you know, there the team was really neurologists, physical rehab people, and a person from the engineering department, as well as IPS specialist. And they were able to get jobs for people with quadriplegia and all kinds of really serious problems. I was amazed. And part of how they do that is, uh, you know, they figure out what kind of physical um, ability the person has. Is he, you know, does he have one hand that he can use to press a computer or does he have one finger that he can use to, um, you know, direct a special panel that the engineers build for him or is he gonna have to do those things uh, you know, with his eyes or with his uh, mouth because he doesn't have any movement at all and so on. Uh, and they're just amazing uh, getting jobs uh, for people. It's an integrated approach that involves the pertinent people for the maybe the disability group that you're working with. We only have time for one or two more questions, but there seems to be a whole lot of interest for, you know, the the, the work you're doing I'd love to have you back on again sometime. Sure. So Jessica asks, in your experience, what has been the most challenging for people to retain employment while overcoming mental health challenges? Uh, what supports have been the most effective to support individuals to retain employment? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Yeah. You know, I think people are challenged in different ways, aren't they? Sometimes the challenge is more uh, social and environmental. Sometimes the challenge is managing um, symptoms. Sometimes the challenge is uh, learning the skills that one needs to 
um, do the job. I'm always amazed at how clever the IPS specialists are at finding the right job and helping people to overcome the challenges that they uh, do experience. You know, I had a lady once who was my uh, psychotherapy client, and, you know, this lady really uh, couldn't be around other people. You know, she would she would just uh, erupt with uh, impulsive anger in all kinds of situations, including, you know, meeting with me. She once brought a dog to the therapy and had the dog attack me. <laughs> um, so... And she was always, and she was cutting herself up all the time too. Had you know, hundreds or maybe thousands of scars from carving on herself. But anyway, this terrific employment specialist got her a job uh, during the middle of the night uh, doing autopsies in a uh, a lab where they were, you know, giving these toxic uh, medications to um, mice. And she would go through the lab and, you know, find the mice who had died, and then she would open them up and do all these autopsies and weigh things and keep, you know, make notes and everything like that. And she would leave the lab before anybody else arrived in the morning. So she never had to run into anybody at all. And she did great work, and they just loved her at this job. Um, Shaheen uh, asks, when a consumer has been out of employment for 8 to 10 years because of their illness, how does one motivate them when reality is no longer the illness holding them back, but rather complacency, comfort, and the habits they formed? How do we help them overcome that? Well, I don't know if we're great at providing motivation uh, externally. Um, I think the person has to have some interest in work. But having said that, I've seen a bunch of people who hadn't worked in years or maybe had never worked at all and were really scared about working, you know, but they liked art or they liked uh, theater or they liked something. And so we got them, you know, a job just one hour a week in uh, in that area so they could see what it was like. And then over time, it just gradually uh, increased most most people with um, serious mental health problems uh, will, you know, end up working 20 to 25 hours. But it may take six months or a year for them to build up to that level. I'm just going to keep going with the questions while we still have time. Uh, Melissa sure. asks, do you disclose a client's barriers to employers at the gate as a way of building an honest relationship? And what's the best way to approach employers initially? Well, you know, uh, Sarah and Debbie have written uh, these really nice things about uh, how to uh, do job development. I think they call it three cups of tea. Uh, and I don't do it exactly like that because they're the experts and they wrote this book after I had been doing the work. But, you know, for me, um, I find it really fun to go meet a new employer and I'm genuinely interested in what kind of business they have and what it's like to run that kind of business and who are the people that work in the back and what kinds of jobs do they do and all that kind of stuff. And after I've had one or two meetings that are, you know, just building a relationship like that and learning about their business, then I say, well, 
if I have someone that I think would fit into your place well, could I give you a call about it? And uh, and usually the employer will say, yeah, please call me and uh, be sure you call me and give me the guy's name because everybody has to apply for a job through uh, the internet at our company. And if you tell me the name, I'll put that person up the top of the list and make sure I interview him. But I, I don't even have somebody in mind at that point. And then when I call them about a person, I mostly just tell them, I think this guy would be really good in your setting doing this specific kind of job that you and I talked about. Um, I don't tend to say anything about what kind of disability they have. And, of course, the employer is not allowed to ask. That is true. Dana asks, and I think this is our last question, how can confidence levels be raised of employment specialists with little to no business experience or training uh, when, begin, when beginning employer engagement activities? Well, that's a really good question. I think that's why we try to have make sure we have supervisors and trainers who've got a lot of experience. I remember when I first started doing this, uh, Debbie Becker and I would go visit programs in different parts of the country. And the, the sort of typical experience was they would tell us about how you know, there weren't any jobs in their area and their clients were too sick and et cetera, et cetera. And so, and we said, well, that, you know, that may be true, but why don't we go out with you just so we can see what it's like. And so Debbie would go to with one of them and I'd go with the other one and we'd meet back at the end of the day. And I had learned some things and Debbie had gotten three jobs for people. <laughs> so I think, you know, people who know how to do this are really good at it. And it's really, really it's not a natural thing for most people. You know, you don't study this in school necessarily. And so it's really important to have a supervisor who does what we call field-based supervision that, you know, goes out into the field with you and uh, helps you learn how to do uh, job development and helps you learn how to uh, talk to employers uh, with confidence, helps you learn how to answer somewhat challenging questions and so on. That is, that is great. You know, everyone, we're out of time. Uh, there are many questions that we have not gotten to, and I've put our email address, the sciRehab at bu.edu, in there. You know, if there's something anyone wants to ask that we didn't get to, please email us, and we'll make sure someone gets you an answer. If, if not, you know, if it can't be Bob, someone can help you out. Uh, Bob, I want to thank you for taking your time today to answering everyone, and, and I'd love to have you do this again sometime. Um, okay, fine. Hopefully. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And I'm sorry I couldn't see all of you. And uh, it always feels better to have a more direct conversation. But uh, I'd be glad to be here again. Thank you very much. Um, hopefully, after this webinar, uh, by email, all these participants, you'll receive a link to the recording uh, as well as a survey. Um, and we have other Ask Me Anythings About Employment coming up with other speakers as well. Um, again, thank you, Bob, for spending your time with us this afternoon, and we look forward to seeing you all again. Uh, good day, everyone, and goodbye. Goodbye.